Tonight we begin chapter 3, Karma Yoga. Arjuna Vacha, Dayasi Chet Karmanas Te Matha Buddha Janardana Tatkim Karmani Ghore Mam Niyo Jayasi Keshava Vyamishreneva Bakena Buddhim Moha Yasivame Tad Ekam Badanis Chitya Yeno Yena Shreyo Hum Apnuyam so this chapter begins with two uh, uh, verses of inquiry on the part of Arjuna, based on what he's heard thus far. He says, in your opinion, if in your opinion, O Janarda, knowledge is superior to action, then why, O Keshava, are you engaging me in this horrible action? With speech that seems equivocal, you have confused my intelligence. Therefore, please tell me clearly, by which path I will attain the highest good. So as you, like we heard last night, the second chapter is a summary of the contents of the Gita, in, in a sense, in a condensed form. The paths of karma, jnana, and yoga are discussed. And in the context of that discussion of uh, upon concluding the analysis of the self and differentiating it from matter, exercise of sankhya or, or gyan, Krishna told Arjuna that um, that therefore he should fight. <laughs> so he's telling him you're not the body and and so forth, and then he concludes it by telling him that he should therefore he should fight. That is a little confusing. To Arjun, then he dismisses excuses for not fighting that Arjun gave on the basis of Dharma, and then he says, "Now I'm going to tell you about yoga." He starts talking about bhakti yoga, and after a few verses, and then he and he and he says, "But your adhikar is is actually for your eligibility is really for doing your duty, but not for enjoying the fruit." So then he begins to talk about nishkam karma yoga. And after talking about Nishkam Karma Yoga, Arjuna asks him about, he talks to the high end of Nishkam Karma Yoga, and Arjuna asks him about the kind of people who are, whose intelligence is fixed on the Atma, as opposed to people whose intelligence is fixed outside, those whose intelligence is inwardly directed, Stita Pragya, he calls them. So um, he asks what their nature is, how they sit, how they talk, and how they walk. And Krishna gives answers, and concludes the chapter in Arjuna question. So there's a place for questioning. We can see that in the, in the Bhagavad Gita. Krishna surrendered, or excuse me, Arjuna surrendered to his guru, Krishna, in the second chapter, the beginning of the second chapter, and then he began to inquire. But he inquired submissively. And here we find an example of that kind of submissive inquiry if we study carefully the words of Arjuna. <clears throat> he uses the names Janardhan, Keshava, here in addressing Krishna, Keshava is uh, a nice name. It means long hair in one sense, but it also means, the Goswamis have said Ka-isha. Ka-isha means who's the controller, or the supreme Isha, who's the controller of Brahma and Shiva and so forth. And the implication is that I'm asking these questions. I'm confused about what you've said, but... Um, you must be right, after all, and what you want must be done. And that goes without saying, because you're the controller of Brahma and Shiva and, and the whole world, and, and so on. So it, it's an in indication of the respectfulness in his implied in his his inquiry. And also in the second verse here, he says that Vyamisreneva um, Bhakena, uh, you speak as if in a way that seem that might seem confusing, he's saying. So he's saying it's, it really isn't. I'm sure that it really isn't confusing. I'm sure that you know what's what's right. You know what you wanted to say, but it's a little confusing to me, and so I'd like it to be some clarification. You told me that knowledge of the atma or intelligence directed to atma was superior to action, and then you asked me to act. 
uh, so what's up? But but respectfully asked. So there's a place for this. Prabhupada used to call it submissive inquiry. In the fourth chapter, when the when it's mentioned that the that the tadvidhi learned people, those who know, uh, uh, approach the the guru for comprehensive knowledge, they do it in a, in a submissive ad, attitude. Tadvidhi, what is that verse? Pariprashnena. Tadvidhi paripatena pariprashnena sevaya. So with, a, with an attitude of service, pranipat. Once Prabhupada was sitting in a room full of devotees and some one uh, um, scientist, uh, I think, professor, guests, that is his uh, scientist student, Dr. Swarup Damodar, uh, had uh, brought to the darshan of Prabhupada that evening. And actually, the man, I think, was a, maybe he was a Sanskrit scholar or something. Anyway, so he was... Prabhupada gave, gave, has been talking and he wanted to ask a question. So, um, he asked, what is God? Yeah, something like that. And, Prabhupada, and I guess the man was a teacher of religion. And Prabhupada said, you are teaching a religion and you're asking me who is God? What is God? And he was just, you know, appalled by it, Prabhupada. So he turned to Rupadamadar, who had invited the man, and said, what do we call this? And he said... Cheater, not teacher. That was a phrase that Prabhupada would use right in front of the man, you know. <laughs> Very boldly. And uh, and the man said, no, no, no. Um, I'm just uh, inquiring. And Prabhupada said, yeah, inquiring means inquire to acquire submissively. And he said, yes, prani, uh, pranipat. And he quoted from this verse. And Prabhupada said, pranipat means this. And pointed to the shaved heads of all of his disciples. He says, Pranipat, don't give me this. You're submissive. Yeah, so <laughs> he was very much um, drawing the line. And um, he wasn't uh, just trying to bring him, bring him across with some, you know, some uh, fancy persuasive language and so forth. He was just... Um, inspired, you know, I'm representing Krishna, and, you, and you're a teacher about God, and Krishna's God, and you're asking who's God, and then you tell me submissive, you're not submissive. Yeah. It's, it's too, everything Prabhupada said was true. Yeah. Hmm. There's, 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 there's no doubt about that. He just didn't, you know, he just said it real boldly. That was kind of his style. So, a submissive inquiry. Prabhupada used to say himself that he only had one question to ask his guru, and that was what? How can I serve? Yeah, that's a nice idea. And uh, so this is the spirit of the inquiry of Arjuna. There's a place for inquiry. There's a place for doubt, as I said before, sitting before the, the teacher. And that's the place to raise the doubts so they might be dismissed, destroyed that they might be uh, answered by reference to, to scripture and scriptural logic applied and so forth. So this is the a little bit of the dynamic of the relationship between the guru and the disciple. The answers, when I say the answers will come based on scripture and scriptural logic, implies what? That the student must have faith. And what does faith mean? Faith means faith in scripture. Faith means that that comprehensive knowledge will be arrived at through revelation. That means, as I've said many times, for perfect knowing, a perfect means to know must be employed. Our intelligence is not a perfect means for knowing, neither our mind or our reasoning power. Uh, you can reason about anything from any angle of vision. You can start to make anything sound reasonable, and that's called modern society. Things that people would never even imagine could possibly be considered will be right up there um, with with good logic, apparently, and reasoning if you give it a, give it enough time. So, so such is the nature of reasoning, and of course the senses, other means of knowing, are obviously imperfect as well. So. If we want perfect knowing, the idea is we can arrive at it with, by th- 
through such imperfect means. And perfect means, as I said, for knowing is like this, folded hands. It means that if God wants us to know, we can know. So perfection should be inclined to reveal itself to the imperfect and thereby make him perfect. That's his prerogative. Perfection is not a dead thing, it's alive. More alive than we are. Imperfection is closer to being dead than perfection is. <laughs> but we we tend to think that our um, kind of headless life, if you will, like a chicken, mm-hmm. runs around with its head cut off, so we're moving aimlessly in the world and proud of it and reasoning about it and how much we're making progress or or whatnot, but it's it's just like that, just like a dead body flapping for a few moments only. To use another phrase of Srila Prabhupada that I always like, dead bodies flapping for a few moments only. Hmm? Where's the life? The life is Bhagavad Bhakti Hinasya Jati Shastram Mandanam Lokarandanam. That without Bhagavad Bhakti, Bhagavad Bhakti Hinasya, life devoid of Bhagavad Bhakti, Bhagavad Bhakti Hinasya. Uh, jati, Shastram, Japatapa. Whether you have good Jati means what? Good birth. Jati, Shastra, Japatapa. Knowledge, learning, austerity, whatever, you know, whatever it is. It's just a decoration. Apranasyaiva Dehasya. Apranasyaiva Dehasya. It's just a decoration of a dead body. That's all. Without Bhagavad Bhakti. This is life. So the the absolute is alive and well, dancing for that matter, partying. And so, you know, if, if he wants us to know about it, we got to interrupt his. You know, he's got to interrupt his party and pay attention to us. And so, in order to to get his attention, we have to at least you know take our shoes off and put our heads heads down. So submissive inquiry. So with folded hands, this is this is the way we can come to know that which cannot be known with, uh, with the limited uh, material facilities that we have. And there is a sense in human society that when we're faced with something, the form, a formidable task or it kind of fosters the faith. We have to, in some instance, we have to go forward and we don't know how, but we have to go which often happens in life, then there's a kind of a, like a trusting in the, that something, it'll, wor- it'll work out, something like that. So, so this refined then is what Gaudiya Vaishnavism is really all about. It's really quite simple in a sense. Prabhupada used to, used to say, just crying for Krishna's help, that's all. That's, that's, he once asked, was asked about yoga, he said, yoga? This was before yoga was that popular. He said, yoga? He said, oh, we, we simply pray yoga with tears in our eyes. Oh, Krishna, please help me. That's yoga. That's all. That's our yoga. Sounds simple, but it is. But it, it, it's the beauty of it and the profundity of it escapes the uh, kind of complicated people or people who have complicated unnecessarily their lives with the burden of of um, unguided reasoning. So, submissive inquiry. This is the heart of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, and this is the um, what we call a perfect means for arriving at perfect knowledge. If there is perfect knowledge, then there has to be a perfect means to get it. And we know of imperfect means, and, and um, we've discussed them, reasoning, sense perception, and so forth. This is a this is a, a means that's beyond ourself you know, that we we appeal beyond our limitations. That's what prayer is. We're appealing to that which is beyond our limitations with with our very being. And um, anybody who has done this sincerely knows that there's power in that for knowing. So very important so, um, submissive inquiry. Uh, and uh, and that means not a challenging inquiry. 
And it means that um, uh, we're talking about faith. It means faith in revelation. So when the guru answers the questions, he or she answers by citing the scripture or by giving scriptural kind of logic, putting the scripture together in a certain way to make, make the point. And because the disciple has faith, and that faith means faith in revelation, that he has faith that knowing comprehensively and bringing a comprehensive solution to the problem of life can only come from beyond myself. And so it's a faith that revelation, there must be some other way of knowing, and I'm dependent upon that. And of course, the body of revelation, scripture and so forth, is a tangible manifestation of that. It may not be the only one. The Guru himself is one, but um, submissive inquiry. So that so it's based on faith and faith in that that uh, that um, by revelation I can know. And there is a coherent body of revelation. In fact, on earth anyway, it's the oldest body of revelation that there is. And the big revelation in the West is, of course, the Christian revelation, which means the birth of Christ and so forth. And there's a whole world of religion and, and reasoning about it. But in the East, long before that, the Upanishads were uh, manifest in human society. And uh, this is the oldest form of of uh, revealed knowledge. So something to be to, to reckon with. And, um, and the Guru will cite this and so forth. And so the questions are answered by citing the scripture. And therefore, when the scripture is cited, because he has faith, because she has faith, satisfied. If the faith isn't comprehend, isn't isn't sufficient, then the answer, aside in the scripture, won't be satisfying. So the, the guru has to see that the disciple has faith in revelation, and you know, to one extent or another, they do. But it, uh, enough, perhaps, to tread the path. But of course, it has to be increased as well. Um, so anyway, Arjun is, is is such a such a student. He has faith, and he's asking here submissively. And after all, Krishna has just summarized the whole Bhagavad Gita, which is quite a task, in a, you know, in a, in a few verses. And much of the Gita um, is about eligibility. It's about different paths, apparently, but really about one. It's really only about bhakti, but it speaks about jnana. It speaks about karma at different times to contrast them with bhakti. It speaks about bhakti directly, and it speaks about what bhakti is not, what the fruits of such pursuit might be, how the two, bhakti and jnana, for example, or bhakti and karma, connect, and how they disconnect, where they go along parallel lines and where they, where they don't. They go along parallel lines as, kind of, as much as there's bhakti and karma, as much as there's bhakti in jnana. So, this is quite a big topic. I mean, people read the whole Gita and are confused. Now, Arjuna's just heard a summary of it in a kind of a sutra form, and it's a bit to, to, to digest. And what's going to happen and unfold here, this is the beginning now of the proverbial yoga ladder of the Bhagavad Gita that culminates in the sixth, at the end of the sixth chapter in a direct emphasis on bhakti by Krishna. Bhaktivinoda Thakur comments there that all of this ladder of yoga is all about different, um, it all, anyway, it all culminates in bhakti. It's all that which can be derived from bhakti at different stages of one's development, or it can be derived independently by the different types of yoga themselves with bhakti factored in. So, um, from the third chapter to the sixth chapter, we're kind of going up this uh, ladder. Arjun has been told in the second chapter he has adhikar for nishkam karma yoga. That's because our Krishna wants to start there. That's the beginning from dharma and the life of re- religious life that is about living the good religious life and going to heaven. And of course, people don't realize it coming back down mm-hmm. and going up and down and up and down and getting from the point of getting off of that roller coaster and moving from dharma to yoga. We can say moving from karma to yoga by adding yoga to karma. And we call that karma yoga, which is the title of this chapter here. It means, karma means action, and action is that which is binding, even if it's good action. It may take us to heaven, but again we come down and so forth. 
But when we factor yoga into action, then the action, you take the teeth out of the action in terms of its being reactionary and binding. And yoga, it means to make some kind of a connection, union with the Supreme, and, and as a result of disconnecting from, from the world. So it's an unplugging from the world, which is all about the fruits of action. People are all, why are they working? For the fruit. Hmm? They're all chasing a carrot. Hmm? And Krishna's going to tell Arjuna over and over again throughout these chapters. That's, that, that way you won't even do the work right. You're just preoccupied with the carrot. And, um, and you won't get out of work what you could. You could get purified by action. Hmm? So this is the beginning then. Uh, uh, and uh, he'll go from karma yoga to jnana yoga in the next chapter to karma sannyasa. So first you do action in the de- with detached from the fruits. This causes the ingress of knowledge. Jnana, cultivation of that knowledge, leads one to the point where they can give up activities, karma sannyasa. And then what they do, they'll, they'll, they'll have an inner life through meditation. That's dhyan that comes in the sixth chapter. And of course... Throughout all this, um, it's, it's bhakti is interwoven and, uh, and uh, emphasized, as I say, directly and indirectly, and underscored then at the end of the sixth chapter. So here, the beginning of this all, Arjuna's dilemma is what? You spoke about knowledge, and you spoke about it being superior to action, but now you've asked me to act. Not only that, but karmani gode. You asked me to engage in, in activities that are horrible. You want me to fight in the war, and of course with my relatives and so forth. And you know, if knowledge is better than action, that's one thing. But you know, then to ask me to do action—that's so maybe something. But now a horrible action on top of that. So he's a little um, has some reservation. He's a little concerned and a little little confused. Of course, Krishna's going to. Answer him basically that don't be confused. I'm speaking about the same thing. When I speak about knowledge and I speak about action detached from the fruits, in the latter case, I speak about the kind of action that will bring knowledge that would not come otherwise. So I want you to have knowledge, but I want you to arrive at knowledge in a way that you actually can rather than sit down and imitate something that you can't do. So again, much of the Gita is about adhikar, about eligibility and so forth. And we can take all of this as it is explained from karma yoga to jnana yoga and so forth up to bhakti. Or we can also look at the whole section as if it's about only about bhakti and that there are different levels of eligibility for engaging in bhakti. That's kind of what Prabhupada looks at the whole thing. Kind of like that. He explains it all, basically. Krishna is only speaking about bhakti. So within bhakti, we know that some people can uh, be sannyasis, for example, and some people need to be householders, and some people can um, uh, are developed enough to sit and and uh, do smaranam, others are not, and so on. So this applies within the context of bhakti, a big topic of the Gita and a very important topic to bhakti Thakur. <laughs> There was a discussion on the harmonists about the, the difference between Bhakti Siddhanta and, and Bhakti Vinod Thakur on the part of various participants there. And it was so distorted, some of the points that people were making as to what they perceived to be the difference between Bhakti Siddhanta and Bhakti Vinod Thakur. And Bhakti Siddhanta, so called, didn't represent Bhakti Vinod and, uh, in so many ways. And, uh, Bhakti Vinod wanted to give out the inner life, and Bhakti Siddhanta wanted to restrict it, and, and so forth and so on. And, uh, they 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 are so uninformed about Bhakti Vinod Thakur. Some of the people that it was pathetic, and they were using the Leet Prashad, the other brother of Bhakti Siddhanta, as the example of the person who really better represented Bhakti Vinod Thakur. <laughs> Nothing could be further from the truth. And, uh, it wasn't that Bhakti Vinod Thakur was going around giving. Siddhapranali to anybody and everybody. That's not what Bhakti Thakur did. He did give it to Lake Prashad when he was very, very old, Bhakti Thakur, passing from the world. And um, in his 
real deep bhajan state, and he had commissioned previously, much earlier, Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsi Thakur to preach. Even after he gave it to Bhalit Prashad, Bhalit Prashad joined Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur's mission and worked with Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. It was clear that he had the blessings of, uh, as the eldest son, at least elder to Bhalit Prashad, to carry out the work of, of Thakur Bhakti Vinod, and it didn't involve just uh, giving Siddha Pranali to somebody and tell him to go sit in the jungle and do, you know, do, do bhajan. Bhakti Vinod Thakur was all about adhikar, eligibility. He was trying to sort out the misrepresentation of Gaudi of Vaishnavism. His books are just filled with filled with that kind of emphasis. It's not it, that's not coming from Bhakti Siddhanta as something separate. From, he's actually echoing and underscoring the, the much of the differences of Bhakti Vinod from others of the time that don't always come out. Maybe so much in terms of the of, uh, say, Bhakti Vinod Thakur. If you're in a certain milieu, you know, you can, you, you're only going to exercise. You're, just like we might find Sanatana Goswami writes the Hari Bhakti Vilas, kind of to fit in, to make the Sampradaya kind of fit in, so to speak. But in generations that follow, the Gaudias look at that Hari Bhakti Vilas in a certain light, right? Differently than it was looked at then. Mm-hmm. Are they not followers of you know, Sanatana Goswami, you know, they're understanding it in perspective. So, Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsati Thakur really underscored what Bhakti Vinod Thakur was, was all about. Hmm? Some of which was, was more, um, well, he, he, he's bringing it out and underscoring it, you know. And as I wrote there, you know, who gave, he wrote, he published all the books of Bhakti Vinod Thakur, not just a few, all of them, esoteric ones, everyone. He was totally give Bhakti Vinod Thakur to the world, and he did. So anyway, anyway, so um, it's very much part of uh, adhikar and consideration of and those type of considerations, any spiritual path, and certainly about um, Gaudiya Vaishnavism as well. And, and within our paribar, our family, our our sect, that much more it was emphasized by by Bhakti Vinod. So anyway, here's the beginning now of this. Um, um, in the previous chapter, he said, you, you're eligible, this is what you're eligible for. I've talked about bhakti, okay, that's, that's something that's there. You cannot get bhakti, as Vishnu Chakritaka explains, without the grace of a great devotee. So, I talked about bhakti, Arjun. At some point, you're going to get blessed by a great devotee, and then you can take up bhakti, because that's the only way that you can take it up, not by anything that you do. Otherwise, without that, you have eligibility for karma yoga. I've assessed you and so forth. So I want to talk about bhakti, and in the future you're going to get blessed by a devotee, and you're going to take up bhakti yoga. But without that, this is this is what's being taught here. Without that, you may have if you're at all, you may have eligibility for spiritual life for nishkam karma yoga. This you can get eligibility for in another way, other than just by kripa, but bhakti only by only by mercy. Of course, bhakti is generous and. Arjuna is a devotee, but he's playing the part of being illusioned by Krishna's arrangement for our sake. So I wanted to have a shorter class tonight. What's the time? We'll stop there. Any question? Yes. You said last night when you were discussing that, you said Gyan was within the humans when you talking about this right And I thought that the argument could be made from someone in the Gyan art that well, the goal is Brahman, so how could that be said, that Gyan is within the Gunas? No, they do say, the Gyanis say that, that um, knowledge, knowledge is also to be given up. Knowledge, the knower, the object of knowledge, the knower, that which is to be known at all, it's all given up. They use knowledge to, to arrive at a, you know, an experience, a contentless experience. <laughs> Of, of, of Brahman. So it's very clear in the Gita, knowledge is sattva. But your point is interesting, and I can see where it would come up for people, because isn't Brahman ultimate knowledge? Uh, it's kind of like knowledge about Brahman is given up, and you experience Brahman, and it's not about anything in your head kind of knowing. 
So there's, they, they leave the ideas, they leave the process of knowledge behind. The means, there's, a, there, there, there's the Gyan Yoga. These, these guys are, um, I don't know exactly what they do to be honest with you, but they, 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 they really um, study the scriptures a lot. Like Prakashananda Sastri told Mahaprabhu, your sannyasi, you should be studying the Vedanta. Studying, poring over the Vedanta and the aphorisms, Om, you know, uh, Tattva Masi and so forth. And they, they very much, I think they very much corner themselves, so to speak, their minds by knowledge from the scripture and, uh, and so forth. But there's a, there's a process going on there. It's a type of yoga and it's different than the goal. And it's sattvic, and they would consider bhakti sattvic too. And they give up bhakti, and they give up knowledge. Uh, we criticize them for giving up bhakti, but actually they even give up, really, this is the idea, and they give up knowledge. So, the, But we teach, of course, and the scriptures teach that bhakti is nistragunya, so it's, it's the means and the ends at the same time. Whereas in jnana or in karma yoga, nishkam karma yoga is, is, is the mode of passion. It's influenced by passion, by the desire for action in, in the world and so forth. And uh, you give up the fruit, but you're still doing the action. And then, and then Gyan Yoga is if, uh, uh, influenced by sattva, and that must be given up. Well, it seems to break the question that how can something that's beyond the good be attained or something? It can't. It can't. That's why bhakti has to be factored in in order to be successful in Gyan Yoga or Nishkam Karma Yoga. That's the teaching. How can they argue with that? I mean, they, they admit that their process is different from the goal. And it's of this world. The process is of this world. How can it give uh, real estate in that world? It's false currency. Our answer is, well, it can't. Therefore, you need a transcendental means. Like I said, you need perfect means to have perfect knowledge. And this is the perfect means, bhakti, that descends. You had a question? Yeah, um, you were talking about um, the guru dispelling doubts by citing scripture. Guru doing what? Dispelling doubts by citing scripture. And I mean, that makes sense, but it also seems kind of contradictory to the other way. Did someone speak about it, like the guru, especially it would seem like in our culture, like it, they're not being this like inherent faith in the shastra. It's like the faith in the guru would come first. Like how we often talk about faith in the deity comes from the Vaishnava, and in my experience, it's kind of like faith in the shastra comes. So you're saying that they just believe the guru, whatever he says, but he teaches that what he says is represented by by scripture and by revelation. And you're actually, if you're thoughtful, you're accepting him because there's reasons that you're accepting him. You may just accept him because he's just a charismatic person and so forth, but a more well-reasoned approach would be to accept him because he actually embodies the, the, uh, a teaching that you can get your hands on, you know, that, that's there, that's not just something you make up and change the next day and so forth. And so in the context of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, you really, without thinking about it, you really do have faith in the idea that the guru is representing the scriptures and, and you feel confident that he is, and therefore you're, you're, you're at the point where whatever he says, I figure he's got it figured out, he's got it represented, whether he quotes the verse or not. But you didn't arrive at that the first day. So I think that um, it's true that people are influenced by charismatic people and and some of them, like a Rajneesh or something, they, they don't know, you know, they don't know Bhagavad Gita from from you know whatever. I mean, these guys have no knowledge from a scriptural point of view. They're psychologically interesting, you know. Sometimes, kind of. I mean, I couldn't, couldn't find that, that particular gentleman to be too interesting, full of contradictions and so forth, but um, what can you do? I and mean, people are going to accept it, but that's why we, 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 we stress the scriptures and so forth. Prabhupada was very adamant about that, and he gave us all those books, and it creates a... We're talking about a certain kind of faith, faith that's sat, of a sattvic nature, 
faith in scripture, faith in revelation, that's that's sattvic. Faith in me, Krishna says, is even higher, transcendental. Completely so, of course, Bhagavatam is beyond the, the scripture, even. Granta, but does that help? Alright, we'll stop there. So when Bhagavad Gita Kijai. Reading from chapter 3, verse 3. So this chapter opened with two questions. One question from Arjun, covering two verses, in which he respectfully expressed his confusion with confidence that Krishna could clear it up by speaking clearly, in the Arjun's opinion, more clearly than he had thus far, as to what course he was actually recommending for Arjun, given that at one point in the previous chapter he had spoken about knowledge being superior to action, and another point he had emphasized action. So Arjun's confused. He thinks that two things have been recommended at the same time. And in one sense, Krishna says that's the fact. He says, Lokesmin dvibhidha nishta. Lokesmin, in this world, then, dvibhidha. This means two. Two kinds of one thing, however. Dvibhidha nishta. Two types in this world, there are two types of nishta. Nishta here means two types of uh, determinations, two types of faith, two types of devotion. And he says these two types, there are two types of devotion, two types of faith, two types of pursuit. There are, he wants to say there are two ways to pursue the same thing. There are two ways to pursue uh, the absolute, to to uh, move along with one's uh, faith in the Absolute. And uh, he refers to Arjuna nicely as Mayanaga. Anaga means without sin. So, Prokta Maya, by me spoken, were, um, was really one thing, but two ways to approach it. And uh, uh, o sinless one. So the purity of Arjun is emphasized here. And we saw it to some extent in his way he inquired from Arjun in the first two uh, verses of this chapter. Respectfully, thoughtfully, he placed his doubts with confidence that they would be eradicated. Of course, Arjun is, this is all about qualification, about Adhikar to go up the ladder of yoga, so to speak. And of course, he's eminently qualified. He's already at the highest level of devotion, but he's playing the part of someone who's not for our sake. And through him, Krishna's walking us through the course, so to speak, of, of different um, ways in which to approach the same thing relative to one's qualification. The big emphasis in these first six chapters about adhikar eligibility. This is, as we said before, one of the emphases of Bhaktivinoda Thakur. He liked to quote from the Bhagavatam, that um, 11th canto, that in his, in the paraphrasing of Sridhar Maharaj, that uh, knowing one's position or one's eligibility is, is, is real beauty. It's the sum and substance of appropriate action, the moral standard and so forth. It's true beauty. And we see that practically when people are over-promoted, it becomes un unbecoming. At the same time, if they're not taken advantage of fully in terms of their abilities and what they bring to the table, it also is uh, not very pretty. Uh, so to be engaged according to one's eligibility and to sort all that out, some good guidance is required. Arjuna here is getting that good guidance from Sri Krishna himself. 
So while this is about Jnana Yoga, Karma Yoga, and so on and so forth, all of this, of course, can be applied to Bhakti Yoga as well. Eligibility is a big issue in Bhakti, and that's the way in which Bhakti Vinod Thakur talked about it, because he was preaching about, about Bhakti. We see in the life of Chaitanya Mahaprabhu an example of how he conducted himself in the early stages of his life as a, um, a teacher of bhakti. Primarily he taught how by example. That idea will come in this chapter here. Yadirachartishvestas tatarevitarojana. That um, the action speaks louder than, than precept. Mahaprabhu didn't say that much. We don't have any books from him. Of course, his followers wrote volumes of books about him and about his teaching and so forth, but he himself emphasized example over precept. And in his example, he, he uh, began by Namsan Kirtan, widely preaching. He taught that at the beginning of the Sankirtan, there was the effect of cleansing the heart and then it moved gradually, we moved gradually up and as we go up we become more qualified to partake in all that is bhakti. So as much as this is about karma yoga and jnana yoga, as I say, and so, and so forth, uh, dhyana will come up in the sixth chapter, karma sannyasa will come up in the fifth chapter. It all has its application within the context of bhakti. But here, directly, indirectly, he began in the second chapter when he spoke about yoga, to speak about bhakti, but he shortly thereafter shifted the emphasis to nishkam karma yoga. So he wants to say this is the beginning. At the same time, he spoke about jnana also. We've heard that the chapter 2 is a summary of the Gita, so we have jnana, karma, and bhakti there. Um, Arjuna's questions here don't deal with bhakti. They deal with jnana and karma, even though bhakti was brought up. He is a bhakta by nature, and um, at the same time, that aspect of himself is being suppressed, so to speak. And what's come to the fore is is, is the topics of karma yoga and jnana yoga. And in a sense, Krishna wants to say here that the. I think I mentioned it the other day, the qualification for bhakti is very special. What gives birth to bhakti? One's eligibility for bhakti is shraddha, faith, and where does it come from? It comes from the association of the blessing of a bhakta. So bhakti comes only from bhakti. The only way we can get eligibility for bhakti is by that contact. And so it would appear anyway, ostensibly, that Arjun hasn't had it yet here. He's, so he's qualified for other things, is the idea. And they may kind of enable us to enter at a certain level and go from down to up, but Bhakti's coming from up to down, and then it take, takes us up. So the two topics, he says, there's two topics, but they're really um, only two ways of approaching the same thing. He'll come out and say this directly later on. Again, in the fifth chapter, it's brought up. But what are the two things? Jnana yoga, sankhyanam, karma yogena, yoginam. So, the Lord of Sri Bhagavan said, O sinless one, I have explained previous, as I have explained previously, previously, in this world there is a twofold basis of devotion or faith or determination that of knowledge for contemplatives and action for yogis. Now he's going to go on and emphasize the latter, action for yogis, because why? The first uh, jnana yoga, although he brought it up first in the Gita by telling, explaining to Krishna the difference between the body and the soul, the way to arrive at that understanding is other than cultivating directly that understanding. Cultivating a means for purifying the heart will allow create a situation in which jnana will um, enter, make its appearance. So, he 
he wants to say here, obviously, there's some qualification for jnana, and the means to arrive at it is nishkam karma. At one stage, this thing is called nishkam karma. At another stage, it's called jnana yoga. It's one thing. But at different stages, it will be named differently. And nishkam karma means that we, we, we work according to the prescribed duties of the Vedas, for example, in Arjuna's case as a chatriya, but without attachment to the results, without desiring to go to heaven, as most of the warriors will. And uh, nishkam karma is then without foregoing the action. So doing the action, not foregoing the action, but doing it with, because that will be a problem, forego it and do it, but do it in such a way with, that without being attached to the results. This is what becomes then yoga, turns karma into karma yoga. And such action that is sacrifice at its heart, that will purify the heart. Then knowledge will come. This is a big difference then between bhakti and jnana, of course, is what? That bhakti will come into an impure heart, and that's her generosity. But at the same time, when she comes into the heart of an impure person, the highest reaches of bhakti are not going to be accessible to that person immediately. Just like one will have to perform nishkam karma yoga in order for jnana to come in, so for the full blossoming of bhakti to come, we have to pass through some stages to sit and, and, and inward and, and be involved in inward culture of bhakti, like one would sit and be involved in inward culture of the atma, requires that one move in a particular way. As I've said before, how our ability to sit will be determined by how we walk. This, is, this teaching of the Gita keeps coming up. It comes up in this chapter comes up in the next chapter, the fifth chapter, comes up in the sixth chapter, when Krishna begins to speak directly about sitting, dhyan, you know, first he talks about how to walk. So how to act, in other words. Act in such a way that the heart will become purified. That will give us capacity to sit. So in the context of bhakti, also, we are initiated into the rag marg sampradaya and pursuing the highest ideals of Braj Bhakti that Mahaprabhu came to give, but they're not going to come in our hearts all of a sudden, all at once. They'll come into a clean heart. The Bhakti will go into the unclean heart and will clean the heart. The famous verse from Bhagavatam is there at the end of the tenth, end of the Ras Pancha Jai, the five chapters, Pancha, five Adhyayi chapters of Srimad Bhagavatam that deal with Krishna's Ras Lila. This is the kind of crescendo of the book. It builds up to that point where Krishna's relationship with the gopis is, um, how they say? Consummated. Consummated. And then the departure from Braj starts to come about. He goes to Mathura and Dwarka. And as I said before, these leelas are all intended to, to sh shed light back on the significance of the Braj leela. That's a good point that we can raise when making the point, making the case that, that Devaki Nanda or Devaki Nandan Krishna here, Dwarkadesh, Dwarkesh Krishna, who's speaking the Bhagavad Gita, that manifestation of Krishna is speaking the Bhagavad Gita, but we say that he speaks about Brajabhakti. So I say, well what's Dwarkadesh gonna how's he gonna speak about Brajabhakti? He's in another realm. He's the same Krishna, but he is associated with particular devotees who bring out certain sentiments in him and so forth. Here he's in Kurukshetra, so he's going to be reminded of his previous visit there, and these sentiments are going to come out to some extent. And after all, as I say, the whole Dwarka Leela, the whole Matura Leela, is meant to shed light back on the Braj Leela. This is a big part of those later Leelas, the, the end practically of Krishna's whole Leela. And he gives this world famous forever, you know, discourse. He's going to say nothing about Vrindavan. Just what the whole point of his whole appearance is, and the whole Dwarkalila is indirectly meant to sh shed light back on that. He's going to be his lips are going to be forever sealed. About he's going to speak about bhakti and dharma and so forth, at Kurukshetra and and again the whole purpose of his lila is separate from there. 
is to shine light back on it, the significance of it. So certainly it will, uh, it will come out. So at the end of the Rasalila, anyway, this, this verse comes that speaks about how bhakti will go into the heart of the unqualified people. And there it is said what? What is that verse? Um, Sukadev tells the king that Vrajavadu, these activities that I've just described, the Vrajavadu, the wives, the hus- the wives of the of the cowherd people, in relation to Vishnu, Sukadev uses the word Vishnu. It's Krishna, of course, but he wants to say that this Krishna is Vishnu. This cowherd is Vishnu. He's God. So let's get it straight. These girls, these descriptions I've just given of their of the wives of the Braj running with this other person, so other 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 than their husbands, that person is Vishnu. And he says, um, who hears about them faithfully. And I wish I could remember the text, the Sanskrit text, because the words are important, but Basically, faithfully, carefully studied there, means faithfully means following. It means shadhan, 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 means filled with faith. And that means following, shadhan, following in the Guru Parampara. So, uh, there's a way to hear about those pastimes. Anybody who hears, but look carefully at the words it means, who hears gets proper sambandagan, hears in the, in the, in, by following faithfully in the Guru Parampara. In that person's heart, bhakti will come. And hridrogam ashvapino tyachirena That rogam of the heart, hridrogam, rogam means disease. The disease of the heart, lust, will come out. Bhakti will come in, and lust will come out. So it's not that we'll do something else, like Nishkam Karma Yoga, and Hridrogam will come out. The disease of the heart, lust will come out, which is our attachment to the fruits of our activity. And then Gyan will come in. In the case of bhakti, bhakti will come in first, even in the, in the contaminated heart, such as her power, that she can go there. She's in, in her independence. She can go there. We can, cannot. And going there, she purifies the heart. So the first thing we should look for is that this, is, this lust is coming out, not that Radha Krishna Leela is manifesting. It, it says it will come out. That's, that's the first thing that will happen. It will go there and it will come out. So people sometimes inappropriately want to, want to go there without it coming out. And they use that verse as a, as a justification for it. Just sit and hear the pastimes and, and so forth. But to hear in a proper way. And hear in a proper way from Guru Parampara means also to hear about these pastimes also in terms of their the philosophical significance of them. Hmm? And 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 how uh, what what is underlying all of them, and so forth. Maybe always doesn't always mean to hear directly about them. It wants to say they they have that power, those pastimes. So preachers shouldn't understand. There's nothing wrong with those pastimes. They have the power to cleanse the heart, but they do it in a particular way. Someone who's interested in Krishna Leela will be interested in all aspects about Krishna, to some extent or another. I mean, we've already heard from Bhagavad Bhagavatamrita that Krishna's associates also go to Baikuntha with Narayan, and so we're not uninterested in them there. They're not bad people. <laughs> and so as we progress in devotion, gradually we kind of, in a way, pass through all these different realms in sense. All that's constituted of Baikuntha, that must come within us. That's... And um, and so forth. So it's a gradual, 
process, but it's from bhakti from beginning to end. Here we're going from nishkam karma to jnan, and in, 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 in a way this can then make one one would think more qualified for bhakti, but bhakti is independent, so she goes wherever she likes. And we, we, we find that she, that, uh, she goes to the, to the lowest quarters sometimes. This was particularly the uh, way in which Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's mission was um, forged in the world at the, in the hands of uh, Nityananda Prabhu. Uh, but, but at any rate, there's a, there's a progression within bhakti. And, um, and consideration of one's eligibility is important. So we cannot just sit down and do, for example, Leela Smarnam from the beginning. This is a huge emphasis of Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsati Thakur following in the line of Bhakti Vinod Thakur, trying to give some dignity to Gaudiya Vaishnavism, which had become much misunderstood as a cult of people into womanizing in the name of renunciation and so forth. So he got people busy with mission and monasteries and preaching, outreach and book publishing. All these were very revolutionary things, but they kind of constitute a nishkam karma yoga kind of approach within bhakti, you know, to bhakti. You follow? Sridharmarsh used to like this as, well, he spoke about the opening of the Bhag Bazaar Moth which was a marble temple in Calcutta. It doesn't mean that much to us now, but in those days, there were no Gaudiya Vaishnav temples in major cities. The temples were all in Mayapur, Jagannath Puri, Vrindavan, all the holy doms, which were thought to be to keep one away from the world and Maya and so forth, and they did. They are, they are a very uh, devotionally conducive environment. But Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsati Thakur's approach, which very much follows that of Nityananda Prabhu, was the best defense is a good offense. So we'll, 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 attack the, we'll attack the strong point of Maya. That was his idea. We'll attack the stronghold of Maya. Go right to the core, you know, to Calcutta. And there we'll, you know, we'll make a, make a temple. And, and so, they would go out, he sent his men out, and they would go out and collecting from the householders for a marble temple. Sri Marshall was explaining that we would collect money from people and then we would just throw it at the temple, throw the money at the deity. And people would think, why they're not opening hospitals? Why not you know, feeding the poor? There's so many better uses for this money. We would just, he would just take it and we were just throwing it at the, at the temple and it would disappear. Marble would go up, you know, and then the deity would be decorated and so on and so forth. He uh, commented on this in his impromptu explanation of the, of the, of the banner, so to speak. Of the, there was a poem that Bhakti Siddhartha wrote and Shudamar said, when we took the deities from a rented house on a palanquin, into the marble temple that had been finished that we had collected all the money for, which was, an, you know, people thought, well, why are you spending all this on a temple? And in Calcutta, you know, and, we, and they, then they chanted this verse, Pujala Raga Patagora Vabhange Matala Hari Janaki Tanarange. And, and, and this, there was a few lines, but this is the, this is the main line. Sridharmarsh has it as a banner engraved over in the marble above his, uh, the altar. And his, and his mouth, Pujala Raga, but the God of Abhange, Matala Sadhujana Kirtana So his explanation was that, that with reverence, we'll worship the deity and throw everything that's in our heart, so to speak, all material desires and that of other people, throw it in the altar, just throw it at the deity, worship the deity in a, in a, in a grand way. The brother of Bhakti Siddhanta Sarsati Thakur accused him of leaving the Rag Marg for opening big marble temples with Aishvarya and so forth. But his idea was that people have attraction for all types of worldly things, money and the like and so forth. They should throw it at the deity and worship the deity opulently. And in effect, they will cleanse their heart and they will cross over this Gauravabhanga, this Worship with with reverence, Gorava, that it will be bungay, it will be broken. 
Pujala Ragapata. This is the way to enter the rag, the rag mark. Pujala Ragapata Gaurava Bhange. That point that will be broken, that reverence, and the heart of the rag of spontaneity and intimacy will be, and an opportunity will be accessed when it's cleansed in the context of bhakti. So they would do kirtan, preaching, in a big way. That was the idea, preaching, outreach, attacking maya, and going to the people and shaking them down, telling them, give their, you know, their resources for, 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 for building a temple. A temple would go up, their hearts would become cleansed. And so this way they would preach and, uh, and they would become purified, the people would become purified. And gradually this uh, reverential worship that would be crossed over. So this is a very interesting idea, practical idea, but it illustrates anyway the point that's being brought up here. As Krishna will go on now, emphasize Nishkam Karma Yoga as the way to for Gyan to come into the heart, at which time it can be cultivated. So there's a way we can conduct ourselves in the context of bhakti. And he said it very nicely when he said, Kirtana Prabhave Smarana Swabhave. Kirtan has power. And Kirtan, for him, was very a dynamic idea. It included, as I say, printing presses, building temples, all types of busy activity and so forth. The people might be doing anyway, building something, printing something, uh, but doing it for Krishna and, and for pushing the teaching and pu- pushing, pushing it in, a, in, a, in an accurate way. People might know. He say, keep the ragmarg up high above our head and we'll worship the ragmarg. We'll have reverence for the ragmarg, not for Krishna. It's not that we'll do reverential worship for Krishna and then we'll get rag. We'll have reverence for rag. Reverence for the inhabitants. What that means that these inhabitants of Vrindavan are intimately associated with the Bhagwan in this way, wrestling him to the ground. And, and so what does that mean? What is it? What, how high that is? That Krishna is, is conquered by their love. Completely. That's what Krishna means. Krishna means that form that expression of divinity that's completely conquered. That he's the son of the show. He has to be obedient to her. The friend of Sridham, he has to be on equal terms and be defeated in wrestling. He's the lover of Radha. Krishna means just that. It means he's conquered by his devotees. He, the absolute is appearing in that way. <laughs> so, so he said we should worship that with reverence. Reverence for the Ragmark, that will be good for us. And what we will do, to, to how will we show that? We will express that reverence. We will broadcast the glories of the Ragmark everywhere through Kirtan and opening of temples and so forth. And we'll tell the people that they should give their money for this. And we'll, in a big way, we'll, we'll make this statement and then we'll cross over by that and we'll actually enter into the Ragmark. Very nice idea. So here his his uh, you know progression. This is the this is the, the kirtan and it is kind of the Nishkam Karma Yoga in a way, that the outreach, the preaching within within bhakti, so that the higher knowledge will will come within. I don't want to say that kirtan is a means to an end, because kirtan is the means and kirtan is the ends also. But there may be kirtan with bhav and kirtan without bhav also. Kirtan as a means to acquire bhav, to attain bhav, and to awaken bhava within, and, and kirtan as an expression of bhava. Both things are mentioned and explained in depth in Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. There's uh, bhakti as a, way, as a means and bhakti as an ends, and the, the emotive aspect of bhakti. So, this has to be uh, properly understood. In this sense, these these sections are very important to us as devotees. We have no interest in Nishkam Karma Yoga or Gyan Yoga. We're we're devotees. But 
whatever can be gained by nishkam karma, whatever can be gained by jnana, that will be gained by bhakti, and we should see that it will come within us step by step. So, first from Ras Panchajai, first look for the lust to come out. Then you know bhakti must have come in. <laughs> if it's not coming out, then you wonder if it's even there. Has it even entered there? It's her prerogative to enter. You could be talking about Krishna and she may not have entered. That's also there. And there are scholars that study that have no bhakti. They talk about Rasalila and so forth. So there should be some evidence that, that, it's, that it's entered there. It's a purification of the heart. And some real sense of, of how high this ideal is. Not that it will be discourage us, but we should be encouraged. We're on such a high path, even though we're, we're only in the beginning stage. It's glorious to be a beginner and beautiful to know one's position in relation to the whole thing. The, the, the whole simplifying of and um, cheapening, if you will, of the affair was a huge, much objected to, object of objection on the part of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur. He, and from that you can understand he knew what it was, that he would take such exception to that, that he would, and, and, and that he would keep it tight within his heart, like Naratam says, don't talk about your bhajan. There may be some place for it, but, uh, you know, it's not a cheap thing. So, so these things are important to consider. Here now, Krishna's going to go on. He's going to, he says, don't be confused. I've talked, I've really talked about one thing, but I've talked about it in terms of different people who will approach that one thing in different ways according to their eligibility. And now he'll start to talk about the one side, Nishkam Karma Yoga. This he'll emphasize first. And how without that, you can't get Gyan. Without that, sacrificing. Again, it's the cleansing of the heart. It's not going to come. So, we'll stop there.